How's it, everyone, and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined by the other half of your hosts... Gabriel Krauser. Hello, hello. And uh, today, well, last time we talked about America, but now we're going to talk about the other thing that has dominated the new year, and that is, of course, the the virus, as, uh, as the kids are calling it on the internet. Um, the virus, yeah. So I... Correct me if I'm wrong, Gabriel, because I may be wrong. But from my cursory uh, plebeian examination of the the South African numbers at the moment, it looks like the second wave in South Africa may have peaked and we may be coming down. Do you think that's right? It's a plausible hypothesis. Um, I think it's. I think it is too soon to say with high confidence. Um, but it's a plausible enough hypothesis that it's the kind of thing that we should already be thinking about how to explain if uh, if numbers continue to flatten and dip. Indeed. Um, we I have, just to, just to say, we have seen many troughs. If you look at our, um, our sort of March through yeah, August, yeah, yeah. There wasn't... August there, it was like, you know, the overall trend is sharply rising. But you see little, you see, you know, five day periods where there's a, there seems to be a trough, but it's really just, I don't know, a bit of noise. Right, right, right. In the general were, rise. Yeah, it, there was, so there this, are no, there are very few this, straight lines. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we, we hope that it is, it is coming down. Um, but in the meantime, uh, we should probably talk more in depth about mutations, because of course, this has been one of the stories, I think, that's kind of revitalized COVID is that there's now mutations popping up all over the world. Um, I think there was one from Brazil. Uh, there's one in the UK. And of course, there's one in South Africa. Now, they're not yep. all the same. Um, and scientists are all studying them. So there's still a lot to be learned about these things. I mean, we still don't know, you know, as much as we'd like about COVID-19, um, the original version, uh, and, and how it affects people. Um, but but it's important, I think, that we get to grips on what the potential uh, consequences of these mutations could be on yeah. policy, on how, how the virus progresses, that kind of stuff. Um, and so Gabriel has been very clever in talking to a whole bunch of uh, South African scientists and researchers who have been very uh, keenly studying the South African mutation of the COVID-19 virus, SARS-CoV-2, as the as the fancy people call it. Um, Gabriel, why don't you kick us off and just talk a little bit about what you've learned and what you've been trying to find out. Okay, can I can I preface this with just a, a few comments about terminology, um, some of which are a bit lighthearted, I guess. So what do we call... So, so SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus. You called the... You, you referred to the original uh, variant or strain um there's this there's this sort of funny thing where uh, it's very common in headlines in the news politicians to talk about the south african strain and the british strain or the uk strain and the brazilian strain or variant um and scientists have been talking about the wuhan strain uh that's the sort of name for the original version part of the reason that uh that's been sort of a common practice is because you don't want to think of the Wuhan version uh, automatically as being um, ex cathedra, 
as being original in the sense of Adam, created by the hand of God, right? Uh, you want to think of that as being part of some evolutionary chain. At least right. you want to include that possibility. But so there's just this weird terminological thing where people who called it the Wuhan virus or the China virus um, were denounced as being racist. Uh, that's not being applied to the people who describe the South African mutant or the or the British mutant. Um, and one of the problems with talking about the original strain is that you then also, although you're trying not to be racist, you are terminologically like leaning yourself towards the thought that uh, that SARS-CoV-2 was created in a laboratory because that would be the, the simplest way to have an original strain. Um, so I think, you know, for, for, for the PC freaks who are really worried about using the wrong term, they're a bit damned if they do, damned if they don't. Either they call it the China virus or the Wuhan virus and, you know, they think that uh, that's terribly racist or they call that the original virus and then it sounds like they're saying it was made in a laboratory and uh, that makes them sort of on the on the on the far end of the worrying about it uh worrying about china scale <laughs> so i think that's kind of funny and just a thing to 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 remember <laughs> i will be talking like the scientists about the wuhan strain uh and the other thing is i i watched a sort of comedic clip of a guy phoning into a british radio station saying i'm so glad we've got a british strain proudly british you know we've had all these foreign strains of the virus <laughs> mucking about and I didn't want that. I didn't want China virus. I didn't want Polish virus. I don't. I don't. I don't like foreigners. But now we've got British virus. And and people, you tell me if we didn't do Brexit, do you think we would have our own British virus? <laughs> when we were still part of the EU, we were just importing everything. Now we're making it ourselves. We're even making our own British virus. And I'm going out right now to a pub. I'm. I want to get that British virus, uh, and and sing God bless for Queen. You know. Very good. And and I think we could say the same for South Africa. We are indeed a world leader at the moment, as we have, uh, as our government is continually telling us that we are striving to be. Mm. And this is where it gets dark. One question to ask yourself is why? Okay, the first question is, what is the South African strain? Its official name is 501Y.V2. And the reason for that is 501 refers to a location in the virus's genetic code. So let's say there are about 1,200, somewhere around 1,200 locations. Uh, you can think of the locations as being like pages. You know, 1,000, you know, the, the virus is a book, it's 1,200 pages long. And on page 501, the Wuhan version, uh, was written N, let's just say N, okay? And what that part of the book was uh, instructing the sort of ambient matter to do was create things, part of the spike protein that's very good at latching on to the ACE2 receptors in your cell. And then through uh random typos uh the a new version of the book came along where it's written y instead of n and it turns out that if you write y instead of n you're going to do a much better job of latching on to human cells and 
So that's the 501Y. And that mutation, that particular mutation, is common to the British strain, the South African strain, and the Brazilian strain. That is not what makes the South African strain the South African strain. It's cardinal, but it's it's not exclusive. It's not sufficient. There are other cardinal mutations in the South African strain. There are quite a few. Now, I spoke to one of the people that I spoke to is, is Darren Martin, Professor Darren Martin, who's an evolutionary viral, uh, viral biologist at UCT. And he said, if you look at the top 10 uh, most common mutations in the South African strain, pages where what's written is different to what's written in the Wuhan version of SARS-CoV-2, three of those are host mutations like 501Y, and seven of them are escape mutations. Now, this is easier to explain uh, than it was even a week ago because some of the media has picked up on this. The difference between an escape mutation and a host mutation is that a host mutation is where the virus just figures out how to score goals better. You know, it figures out how to latch onto you better. It figures out how to sort of fly out, how to shed better, all that kind of thing. Whereas an escape mutation is where the virus, virus figures out how to dodge your immune system better. And so the, the escape mutations, like a better armor and uh, what was the other kind you called again? Sorry. Host. The host. Host mutations are like, I don't know, a faster car or something for the virus. Yeah. Or like a better sword. Yeah. So if it's a soccer analogy, the host mutations are like better strikers. The escape mutations are better defenders. If it's a medieval soldier, the host is a better sword to cut into you. The escape is a better armor to, to dodge the immune system's blows. Um, and and to give a to give them a sense of of where Professor Martin's coming from, which I think people will find interesting. It's a little bit technical, but there's two kinds of mutations. There's synonymous mutations and non-synonymous mutations. And this is where the metaphor of a text is very helpful because this really is you know it, genes really are just information. Genes and memes are the same thing, they just have different constituting forms. You know, it's, it's all software, it's all text. And as it's going along, it, the, the only way that the virus evolves is just through typos. So if you write a word um, like uh, run, and then you have a typo, and you write run with two ends, it doesn't really change the meaning of the word. You know, if I write an article and there's a little typo in it, I write run with two ends and it makes it through the uh, the copy editors and the lead editor and it gets published like that. It might bug some of our readers and it's definitely something we try to avoid, but they'll still understand the meaning of the sentence. I run every day. And that's just a one letter addition, right? But what if I change the U to an A? then run becomes right. run. And that's a right. meaningful difference. So if I say I ran every day, you, you're thinking, oh, well, something's changed. You don't do that anymore. If I say I run every day, you get the sense that this is you know, an ongoing part of my routine. So there's a meaningful change. So that's non-synonymous. Ran is non-synonymous to run, although they're the same verb. And of course, uh, you know, if I take ran and I change the R, it becomes can if I change the R to a C. Now, ran and can are totally non-synonymous. Uh, so non-synonymous mutations are when it makes a real meaningful difference to performance, whereas synonymous mutations are where it's not making a meaningful difference. 
it's two that uh, if you look at one page you know if you look at the book on five on page 510 it's got this text versus that text it basically means exactly the same thing so those are non-synonymous versus anonymous mutations and one thing that evolutionary vir uh, virologists do, uh, bio virobiologists do, is they, or all evolutionary biologists, is they look at particular locations to find the ratio of synonymous to non-synonymous mutations. So if you've got a lot of non, if you find, like you, you've sampled a thousand people, ten people, whatever it is, you've sampled your, your, you've taken your samples, and you see at this particular location. All of the changes are non-synonymous. What's that leading you to expect about what's going on at that location? Uh, I know that it's helpful to, to change in that direction. There we go. And if they were all synonymous? Um, that it doesn't really make a difference. No, it makes a difference. If, if all of the changes are synonymous, they're all just typos that keep the same meaning. Then you've then what you've identified is selection against change. It means there would have been some on that ah, page. Okay. There would have been some typos that really changed the meaning. And guess what? If you change the meaning on that page, then the virus dies. That version of the virus does not propagate. So if all of the changes that you're seeing are typos with the same meaning, silly little typos that don't change the meaning. Then you know that page, what's written on that page, is like the best version of the book from the virus's point of view. It doesn't want to change that. So the only changes that it's going to allow are, are rubbish superficial changes. Whereas if you're seeing hardly, if you're seeing very low rubbish superficial changes, but lots of meaningful changes, then you know this is a very important page where the virus was not at its, it was not at the fitness peak. It was not the best version. It's really trying to get away from the original version. It's really trying to get to an updated version because it makes a, a huge difference to the virus performance. So that's the first basic thing to see. And then the second basic thing to see is, are the changes going from one version to another version? Like whenever there is a non-synonymous change, wherever there's a meaningful change, is it changing to the same thing? And that's kind of what we're seeing with location 501. There's a couple of different mutant forms, but like, 90% of the time, the virus is shooting for to go from N to Y. So that's a unidirectional change, a non-synonymous unidirectional change, a meaningful change in one direction. And when you have that, it's a very strong indicator that the, the virus had one version, which was pretty good. You know, it was like a car that could drive this fast or is a short sword that was this sharp. And now it's found a better version where the car can go faster or the sword can strike right. deeper. So it makes sure to replicate that again and again and again. So that, and the reason that's called a host mutation is because that's where the virus is figuring out how to um, uh, operate in the host environment more efficiently, just in a straightforward way. And one of the curious things about SARS-CoV-2 is that is how few host mutations there've been, relatively speaking, uh, which is to say when it arrived, the Wuhan version uh, was a pre, was already very well adapted to humans. It was very near the fitness peak um, for 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 operating in a human environment, which is strongly suggestive that um, it had already been around for longer than uh, than people commonly assume. 
you know, so right. that it, it didn't just get here in December 2019 or October 2019. It might have been here from December 2018. If, if it had evolved from a pangolin, uh, usually when things hop from one animal to another, there's a lot of room for host mutations. There's a lot of room for it to improve meaningfully. Right, because it's not uh, adapted to a human body. Exactly. So it's, so it's still got a lot of adaptation to do. That that has been relatively minor. There was one major host mutation sort of earlier in 2020, and 501 is the next big one. And so the, just those two makes it seem like probably it was around for a bit longer, or if you're into it, you might think that this adds some credence to the laboratory idea. But I'm not going to get into that. Um, the other kind of way that it can work is instead of it being unidirectional, it's multidirectional. In other words, it's making meaningful changes in many directions at a particular page. And that's a hallmark of an escape mutation because that's like that page is programming for its armor and it's programming for a chink in the armor. It's programming for a place where our antibodies are getting through and striking the virus. And it's just changing what's on that page Changes to that page that are naturally occurring to typos that are meaningful are better even whether it's changing to A or P or K or N. You know, it's like kind of any version is better than the original version. And when you've got multidirectional, that is the hallmark of an escape mutation, which is to say it's the hallmark of the virus trying to run away from from our immune system. And so uh, Professor Martin's point was that of the top 10 uh, most common mutation locations in South Africa, three bear the hallmarks of host mutations and seven bear the hallmarks of escape mutations. So the virus is doing a very good job, in other words, of mutating to, to dodge around our immune system. Now, the next question is how, how good a job? And there, one of the major problems is that there is no study in the world um, that focuses on providing a number for how protected you are from reinfection of the Wuhan strain if you've right. already had the Wuhan strain and recovered. So we can't easily tell the difference because we don't have a baseline. Well, we think it's quite a low number because this reinfections are relatively rare, right? So every reinfection that I have found uh, that's been genomically sequenced people were reinfected with a different version. I can't right. find anyone who got Wuhan and then was reinfected with Wuhan. Right, and so I've we can say that it's an, even though we don't have a study, we can say it's an extraordinarily rare event. Yeah, and think about it this way, 109, which is what another um, uh, biologist asked me to do, the 190 million confirmed cases, and let's just say less than 1,000 uh, known reinfections. So, yeah. So, 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 if you compare that to a vaccine, it's like if a vaccine is 95% effective, getting the disease and recovering from it and getting your own immune system to figure out how to club this thing, it's like 99.999% effective. But right. that comes down, that's different across different people. It's different depending on how severe the disease is, but it's like that is, that's the aggregate number. And, the, and the problem is for some people, their protection comes down 20, 30%, it looks like, um, with the mutation, with the South African mutation, which means a significant portion of people can be reinfected. And the same 
uh, uh, seems to be true of the of the vaccine. Uh, so it's possible that the vaccine uh, will be equally robust against the South African strain, but it's it's extremely unlikely. Uh, I mean, right. Professor Martin said he 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 said I don't think you're going to find a viral evolutionary expert in the world who who would bet on the vaccine being just as good against the South African strain as it is against the global strains. He's betting 20 to 30% less effective. I spoke to Professor Willem Hanekom, who's the head of the consortium that's investigating the vaccine's uh, efficacy uh, against the South African strain. He uh, said to me that results, the, the, the lab work was finished. I spoke to him sort of two weeks ago now, basically, um, or like t t 10 days ago. And he said the lab work was still ongoing. It should be done in a few days. And then I checked with him on Tuesday. He said, yeah, it's finished, but we haven't published the results yet. Now it's Sunday. The results still haven't been published. I'm very worried about that delay. Um, but of course, there might be perfectly, uh, you know, quality standard reasons for that delay. But that's something to seriously look out for because uh, it'll give us a more precise understanding of the likely reduction in efficacy of the vaccine. The next thing to know is just because the vaccine is less efficacious doesn't mean it's not a good idea. If the vaccine was going to be 70% efficacious and it's 20% less against the South African strain, you've got to multiply the 70% by the 20%. It comes down to 56%. You're still getting 56% protection. So if everyone got that vaccine, it would reduce the rate of re reproduction by half or by 56%, uh, which would... In South Africa's case, if we're sitting on R equals 1.5, the average person infects one and a half people. Half that, that means the average person is only infecting 0.7 of a person. That so that's a big difference, yeah. We're driving the virus down. That means numbers are coming down. Uh, we're on the route to driving it extinct. Although you really want to get it down to 0.5, but it would be extremely helpful. Right. But this has significant policy implications, doesn't it? Yeah. So I think the biggest... So here's the, the $2 million questions um, uh, that and all the scientists I've spoken to have, have used the same terminology. One is, um, you know, $3 million questions. One is, how good is our body at, at naturally protecting against uh, SARS-CoV-2 once you've had it? The other one is, how much less good is the body at protecting against SARS-CoV-2 uh, on the South African strain? Uh, either one, either through recovery and developing your own immune response or through vaccination, how much less effective is that? And the third million dollar question, which is kind of the first because it's the most likely to shed light into them, is how many people in South Africa have the virus or have mm. had the virus? And this is a question that we've, uh, we've speculated on before, I think. Um, mm. And there's been some data from, you mentioned Discovery, I think, previously. They did a survey in what they came out in August or something. Came out in September, but it was for data up to the twenty fourth of August. Right. And they estimated thirteen million people had or had had the virus by then. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, now thirteen million in August. <laughs> that's a fucking huge number. Sorry. We'll have to edit that out. The, the we can't edit it out. You're just going to have to okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for swearing. <laughs> but it's scary. It's a big it's number. Scary. It's a big right. number, okay? So um, then uh, Professor Mahdi, who's like the head of 
the public health department at Vitz, Matri, he he had something like 16 million on October, was his best estimate. Um, we had another guy, Professor Emeritus at UCT, who was looking at similar numbers, then using the Mowbray sort of uh, antenatal um, sort of HIV patient, sort of, their, you know, blood samples being taken in the Western Cape. And then they were like, well, we might as well just, this is a random group in a way. Let's check what the zero prevalence is there. Uh, zero, just, you know, what, how many people have uh, antibodies for this virus there. And they were getting like half, you know, one in every two people that they were testing. Um, right, which is quite a lot. Yeah. But then there were some worries because it's like, well, Cape Town's a bit of a hotspot. Also, you know, women with HIV that are pregnant coming to these government clinics, like not necessarily a representative sample. Maybe they have on average a different kind of lifestyle. Maybe they're more likely to be sort of connecting with people. So can we really infer that half of Cape Town has it? Not necessarily. Um, but if you look at the South African paper, that, and then that number was updated to 60% uh, later on in the year. So if you look at the paper that identifies the South African strain, in the discussion section, they say, well, how come South Africa seems to have the world's most evolved, sophisticated mutant form of the virus? And they come up with two hypotheses. And the one has to do with HIV. And they say, look, the longer the virus has in a particular body to replicate, the more time it has to evolve. And in particular, the more time it has to evolve escape mutations. Uh, so usually, if you get the virus, I mean, there's only one of two ways that it's going to end for pretty much everyone. Either the virus kills you or you kill the virus. And if that takes on average 14 days, it's only got 14 days to evolve. And if your immune system takes like three days to kick in, it's only got 11 days to try and evolve to escape your immune system. But if right. you have HIV, for example, and you've got a weaker immune system, then maybe on average it, it be can much survive for 28 days. Yeah. And so it's fighting a weaker form of the immune system, so it's got more time to evolve. And this is a little bit like people taking the wrong dosage of their antibiotics. If you're taking half the dosage you're supposed to be taking or you, in, you don't finish your course, then like a weaker... Uh, delivery, a weaker anti uh, antibiotic load gives the uh, b the bacterium a uh, better chance right. to it evolve. Doesn't, it doesn't kill it dead, and so it has a chance to find a way to get around it. Exactly. And so the worry was that because South Africa has a lot of HIV positive people and, you know, people who might be immunosuppressed for other reasons, that's why we might have had these kind of uh, escape mutations happening at a faster rate here. They raise that hypothesis and then they kind of pull it back. Maybe knock it down is too much, but they really pull it back. One thing is that like HIV positive people who are on antiretrovirals uh, have, if anything, improved performance against SARS-CoV-2. Another thing is, is evidence studies have been done showing no difference in average, uh, just across HIV people, more generally no difference in, in average mutation, in average gestation period. Uh, so... So that hypothesis is still interesting, still worth looking at, um, but it's not looking great. Um, they kind of raise it up to knock it down a bit. The other hypothesis is that so many people had the virus that uh, that there's a population level stress in favor of evolution. So if there's one virus, you know, if the original basically has no chance of infecting half the people, but there's a mutation that comes along that's got a 20% chance of infecting those who've already had it, um, 
then it's in a much better position. It's going to, it's going to, it's, you know, it's, it's going to compete on an equal footing with a virgin half. I call them COVID virgins, people who've never had the virus or the vaccine. The technical term is, is people who are virally naive, uh, but let's call them COVID virgins. So, you know, the, the, the Wuhan version and the South African version can compete equally for the COVID virgins, but the South African version can also get 20% of the people who've already had it, um, let's just say to put a number to it. And that means it's got an extra few million, you know, that it can go for. If it's 30 million, 20% of 30 million is like, you know, 4 million, 5 million extra potential infections. And so that's going to give it a way to go. The second reason is not just numbers. It's also um, sort of looking at the heterogeneous nature of society, which is to say some people are much more likely to spread the virus to many people than others. So, and those would be the first people that the virus gets to. And then the first people that the virus can't get to again because they've been infected and now they've got protection. So they can't get to the super spreaders, to, you know, the lazy taxi driver who is generally very snotty and doesn't wear his mask properly and doesn't bother the about... The professional cooking. hugger. The professional <laughs> hugger. So if you can, if you, if all of those guys are off limits to you, then it's very hard for you to spread. But if you can get 20% of those guys, then you're back in business. So that hypothesis looks very serious. They look at numbers. They sort of think about, especially if you, if you think that the Western Cape, which on the best paper that they can cite, sort of maybe has 50, 60% uh, penetration, and you look at the Eastern Cape having worse penetration by the time this uh, study was done towards the end of December, they're like, then the virus must have a huge stress to try and evolve to escape, um, to escape uh, our immune response. So this comes back to the question of, well, how many people have had it? Because if, let's say, only 16 million people have had it today, that's like, you know, 20, 25% of the population only after the second surge have had it. Then that population level stress is much less. Um, then it's much easier to think of the escape mutations as just being, the you know, the virus trying to get away from your immune system, crushing it before it can spread. In other words, some asymptomatic people get the virus and then the immune system crushes the virus before it even gets a chance to replicate and shed. But an escape mutation can slow that down by three days and make someone who would have been totally asymptomatic slightly symptomatic, which then means the virus has a, has a bit of a chance to get out there. That would be the best way to explain what's going on if we've got a very low portion of the population that's been infected. But if we've got a very high portion of the population that's been, being, that's already been infected uh, by December, then the best way to explain it is that the virus is reproducing uh, mutations that are very good at reinfecting people. And that matters because if it's the former, then the vaccines stand a better chance. If it's the latter, the vaccines stand a worse chance. If it's the former, the vaccine plus natural immunity together should drive the virus dead. It's just a, it's just figuring out how to spread quicker, but it's not figuring out how to go back over the same ground. Right. That means right. herd immunity, once you get it, will be a real robust herd immunity, whether you get it naturally or through vaccination. But if it's the latter, then that's very worrying. Then that suggests that uh, SARS-CoV-2 is going to be like uh, the world's most studied coronavirus until now 
which is 229E, which is a very old coronavirus, I think was the first one to be isolated, the common cold, um, which mutates fast enough that uh, it's pretty good at reinfecting a lot of people who've had it before. So like if you have it, then in the next year, you can't get it again. But after that, a mutant form, and, and in fact, never, you can never get that original version again. It's extremely difficult. Like 20 years later, uh, it's you still are going to struggle to get that original version again. But the mutation comes along a year later, and that can clap you. And there's a study that covered 20 years, 25 years, from 1984 to about 2010 of serum samples. Um, and and that's the kind of pattern that they found for 229E. So if South Africa, so this is, so, so we, we, it really matters what the um, seroprevalence, what the, how, how many COVID virgins there are versus how many people have had it in South Africa. Because if it's a lot of COVID virgins, then it's pretty, um, it's kind of, it's kind of good news for the world uh, in that, uh, you know, it's bad news for us because it means there's still a lot of people that can easily be infected, but it's good news for the world because it means the virus is mutating in a way that's just making it slightly more efficient uh, at getting COVID virgins. But if there's a if there's relatively few COVID virgins in South Africa, then it's extremely worrying because it means what the virus is doing is it's figuring out how to really reinfect people in their numbers, which is going to be very bad for the vaccine. It's going to be very bad for natural immunity, and it's it's going to be very good for the virus for the virus's hopes of surviving the next five years um, in, in more and more mutant forms. And the idea that it'll mutate to become less deadly is, is, a, is a bad idea. Uh, Professor Salim Karim has, been, has put that out there, and, uh, and I have rehearsed that idea, and, and Darren Martin just, he, he sort of proverbially spat in my eye when I brought it up. He's like, that's not how it works for an infection fatality ratio as low as COVID. If you've got something like Ebola, if you've got a very high infection fatality ratio, then it is just killing off yeah, people. Yeah, Ebola is like, what, 50% of infected yeah. people die or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So then so then it really does have a fitness advantage to be gained by killing less people. But when you've got such a low infection fatality ratio, he's like, if we don't stop this thing, in 20 years' time, it's going to be much less deadly. But that's going to be because it's going to have killed everyone who can die from it. And uh, all the youth who get it today. Just one last thing virally to understand is like um, the way coronaviruses work and, and the immune system works, it's a little bit like, um, I, I use this metaphor of steps. Like if you're on step five, your immune system is on step five because you've had some kinds of viruses that have gotten you to step five. SARS-CoV-2 comes along, it's on step 10. So it's five steps ahead of you. So if you're young and strong, you can take five steps. You can take six steps. You need to get ahead of it. You can take seven steps to get to step 12, and then you're going to clap it. But if you're a bit frail or a bit old, you can only take three steps at a time, and right. uh, you're going to get to step eight. It's a step 10, and it's going to kill you. But those who survive get to step 12, but then the virus mutates in a year to get to step 14. Now, if you get the mutated version, you will do better. There's no doubt that it still offers you a lot of protection. That if you were going to be severely ill, you'll be less severely ill, uh, maybe even non-symptomatic. If you were going to die, there's a very good chance that you won't die. You'll just get severely ill because you only have to take two extra steps. But if that step 15 version of the virus or step 14 version of the virus comes along and finds someone who's still on step five, then they're in a much worse position uh, 
than if they'd gotten the original. So, so, so Martin's view was like, you know, eventually all the people who can't keep up with the virus, some of them in the first round, some of them in the second round, some of them in the third round, uh, eventually they all die. And everyone else is then just stuck in a tango with SARS-CoV-2, where it takes two steps forward, then you take three steps forward, then it takes three steps forward, then you take two steps forward. Uh, so it becomes like another common cold where it would be much more deadly to a virgin um, than than the common cold. Right. But we so, can deal with so it. And this is exactly how uh, that, that's you know, exactly what happened when in, Europeans in, go to South America. Yeah. Now. Yeah. When they went to when they went to North America, they came in contact with Aztecs and stuff and the people there didn't have any immunity to smallpox, chickenpox, that kind of stuff. And they a lot of them died. Yeah. So so that's so that's the sense in which it becomes less deadly is that the host adapts uh, basically by the host population uh, losing those members who, who are too far behind uh, to, to catch up. So that's how it becomes less deadly. You know, it's like it was much less deadly for Europeans than it was for North Americans. That's not because the virus had evolved. It's because humans had evolved. And remember, evolution is a fitness selection process where, where you know, it's just about things dying. So that's a very, very bad way uh, for us to get to the point where SARS-CoV-2 is not a news story. Um, but if South Africa has a very high uh, prevalence so that the es escape mutations are really uh, getting some numbers of reinfection, some serious numbers of reinfection, then uh, that's the kind of path that we might very well be on where you know the, the new mutant version goes around for a year reinfects 20% of the population. Then there's a new, new uh, version that goes around. And we spread that to the world. So uh, politically, that would probably lead to a very serious isolationist policy against South Africa. Um, although the fact... I mean, uh, that I know the UK has really closed their borders to us uh, for travel, and there's some other countries that have followed. Would it also potentially uh, result in a lot of... Um, foreign support flowing into the country because you know they want to stop the thing getting out and causing damage again and again and again so good question i think that it could and it should but the way that the foreign support should start is right now um it's a million dollar question in the sense that i think it only costs around a million dollars i'm busy trying to cost this uh by speaking to people in iceland uh and South Korea who have been involved in such trials. But we need a random seroprevalence trial, and in Germany. We need scientists to go around and get a random portion of the population and test their blood for, the, for, for, for antibodies against coronavirus. And if they come up with 30%, then you know that what South Africa needs is the same thing everyone else needs. They need to take it easy. They need to uh, vaccinate. Um, but we should have a pretty strong sense that the vaccines will work really well, that natural immunity is working really well, and it should all be okay in a while. I mean, people will die, but by the end of the year, it should be okay. Whereas if our seroprevalence comes out at 60%, 70%, then we should already be at herd immunity, but we're clearly not. Um, and that shows that the virus's evolution is, is outpacing uh, the natural immune system's uh, response and and then you really need a flip and crush 
the virus as quickly as you can here by vaccinating everyone who hasn't been infected, which is also, by the way, a huge problem. Our government's policy is going to be to vaccinate everyone who has been infected um, by going for the civil service and the police and all, you know, all the super spreaders first. Those are just all the people most likely to already have had it. Um, and so that's going to be a very disastrous policy if we're already sitting at like 30 million people have the virus and you get 10 million vaccines and you give them to 8 million people who've already had it, adding almost no protection to them and only 2 million people who haven't, that's leaving the, the virus with the most uh, room to play and continue its evolving thing. So we really need to know this and and, and foreigners should step in to help. I'm, I'm, I don't know if we're going to be able to get that to happen. Um, and so short of that, the idea would be that once foreign countries have vaccinated themselves exhaustively, they will be prepared to vaccinate South Africa basically for free, you know, for free from our point of view, they'll pay for it. Yeah. And I think that's been the ANC's gamble, you know, there's this weird, um, back and forth, uh, Professor Barry Shub who's sort of the head of the vaccine procurement program on hard talk on BBC was saying, oh, you mustn't shout at us. We're a very poor country. We didn't bungle this. Um, and one of the lines that I've kept trying to say uh, as a financial journalist is like, guys, South Africa is a much poorer country than you think. Like everyone keeps going on about inequality. And I'm like, if you look at the capital to income ratios, if you look at wealth stocks, South Africa is actually an extremely poor country. There's very little wealth to redistribute. Uh, if, right. if if the mission is to make poor people rich, there's just very little money here. It's different to Spain. It's different to the UK. But if your object is to, you know, vaccinate everyone with something that costs 100 rand per vaccine, uh, that's not making a poor person rich. That's making a virgin, a COVID virgin into a COVID protected person. Well, we've got more than enough money to do that. We're, you know, we, you've got $6,000 per capita. Right, I saw a little um, poster made by the DA, which which calculated the amount of overspend on the two ESCOM power plants, Madupi and Kusile, the the two new ones that have been you know like massively overspent on, and how if that money hadn't been overspent, they could have vaccinated the whole population something like thirty six times over. Uh, yeah, I thought it was sixty times over, but I mean, something like yeah. that. Yeah, it's some huge number. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for the, for the just the last bailout of SAA alone. I mean, SAA has been bailed out consistently over the last 15 years. Just the last one alone would have been more than enough to vaccinate everyone in the country uh, that isn't a child or pregnant. So, you know, we are, but the problem is we've got a bankrupt government and uh, I suppose our, 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 you know, people like Barry Shub maybe don't have the... Right. Bankrupt and inept. Don't forget the inept. Yeah. The inept is an important part of the equation because even if we have the money, there's no guarantee things will get to people if the government is being too inept. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I, I feel like we've been going we've been going at this for a while. Let me try and do a little bit of a recap. Here's a way to think about it: kind of scenario planning four quadrants. Okay, so two axes to get the four quadrants. The one axis is how good is our immune system at outpacing the virus? You know, the virus is at step 10. We were at step eight. We're getting to step 11, step 12. Are we going to stay ahead of it or is it going to catch up and overtake us? And then the other one is how good are we at vaccinating? Uh, are we going to vaccinate fast enough 
that we like crush the virus, don't give it a chance to evolve, or are we going to vaccinate slowly, a little bit here, a little bit there, vaccinate the, the least helpful people to vaccinate, and leave the virus enough to room to evolve so that by 2022, uh, the viral version that's spreading is actually reducing the vaccine effectiveness by 50%. So you still have a very high chance of catching the disease. If you put those two questions on a quadrant, you see the best case scenario would obviously be that our immune system is outpacing the virus and the, our vaccination program outpaces the virus. And then what we do is we drive the virus extinct. And we could do that in a month. I mean, Israel is on track to drive the virus extinct in that country in the next couple of weeks. Hey, they've already vaccinated <laughs> yeah. half their population. And once they've done that, once the whole population has been vaccinated, if in this good scenario where our immune system stays ahead of the virus, the virus doesn't outpace the vaccine or the immune system, they can open up to the rest of the world and infected people can get in there and it's not even going to be a big deal. Now, I don't think they will open up to everywhere. I think they'll be careful of us because we've got this mutant strain. And right, because they don't want that. mutant strains running around. Uh, but it still gives you a lot of freedom. Yeah, and, but if the, whole know, population, if the whole population has been vaccinated, the mutant strain is very unlikely to penetrate. Because if, it can, if it's got it, you know, if, uh, if, vac if vaccination offers 60% uh, protection against the mutant strain, then then, you know, the viruses are naught number would have to be, uh, it would have to be 2.5 to, to really spread in a population because you've got to take the 2.5, reduce it by 60%. It's still above one. Uh, so then it could spread. But the, but the virus has not exhibited that kind of behavior. Uh, it looks like it's it's R naught. It's still unclear what it's R naught is, but it seems like it's R naught is is a little bit lower than that, and it seems like vaccine protection will still be a little bit higher than that. So that even if you let the mutant strain do what it can, it's not going to bloom. It'll have a little pocket and a little pocket, but it's never it's never going to sustain uh, growth, which is always exponential. It's never going to sustain exponential growth um, because the protection is still too great. But the next version of the mutation, so we've 501Y.V2. When V3 comes along, that could change the equation. Anyway, so in the best case scenario, you vaccinate really well and the immune system stays ahead of the game, you're fine. The, the other scenario is that the immune system stays ahead of the game, but you don't vaccinate very well. And then you reach herd immunity the bad old way, which is basically the same way that you know people have been reaching herd immunity against pathogens uh, for the last 100,000 years, which is the, the poor and the weak died off, and the rest survived, and uh, now 70, 80%, maybe even 90% of the population has it, and we get back to business. Um, the other sort of half and half scenario is where our immune system is not actually keeping up, but the vaccine is surprisingly better than the immune system at beating the mutants. Now, this is unlikely, it's very unlikely, but it is possible. Sometimes vaccines are better at triggering an immune response that is more robust against escape mutations. Right. Uh, can we also... One of those examples. Can, I, can I venture a, a possibility as well that, um, 
you know, we, we something in our technology. So like they're able to very quickly produce a broader spectrum vaccine or something like that. That could also go into this quadrant. Is that uh, a reasonable? Does that fit your scenario here? Yeah. Yeah. Anything, right. anything where, the, where, where our, our, our bodies, this, this virus is so good at evolving that it would be like the flu where just every season you're kind of getting an evolved version or like the common cold 2290, every season or couple of seasons you're getting a new version that can still attack large portions of the people that had the previous version. Uh, but it's less likely uh, to kill them, but it'll still kill them in their numbers. Um, but the vaccine and whatever it takes, you know, whether it's adapting the vaccine or just the original vaccine is really good, that's good at cupping it and so we drive the thing extinct. And then the fourth scenario is one where the virus is actually good at outpacing our immune system and good at outpacing the vaccine, which is only possible, uh, in my view, if you've got a very bad rollout program. Then you become a petri dish for evolving more and more toxic versions of the virus uh, to keep ripping through your own population and through the world. And that that is also a plausible scenario right now. So those are kinds of, those are the four kinds of scenarios to look at, and 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 in South Africa, it's just it's very hard to tell. Like if our curve to get back to your original question, Nick, is our curve flattening? It looks like it is flattening. If it is, why is it flattening? Well, a huge part of it would have to be herd immunity. Now, herd immunity is never an exclusive factor. You know, it can account for 60% and social distancing can account for 40% and so on. And in other countries, herd immunity will be like 90% vaccinated herd immunity, 10% natural herd immunity. In South Africa, whatever herd immunity we have is 100% natural. Um, so I don't know. It might be that we're sitting on like 70% of the downward pressure on the virus is herd immunity and 30% is social distancing which means if we stay where we are, we'll keep clapping the virus. But if you reopen schools, then the R could go back above one and could start spreading exponentially again. Right. And then it's not, yeah, not good. Accepting that there is this very perverse, like, you know, one of the things to worry about, um, and I think this is where, I think this is something that people feel in their bones, is that like if 80% of the population has been infected, at some point from a utilitarian point of view, you actually do just want the extra 10% to be infected if there is no good vaccine rollout. Uh, because if 90% are infected, then it's like short of a miracle of a very demonic kind, um, then the thing will just be so powerful. The, the herd immunity will be so powerful that it will drive the, the virus extinct. Do you understand what I'm saying? You understand? You know? Do you know what the Malthusian yeah, yeah. problem is? Yeah, yeah. Uh, too, too, too many people. We can't feed them all. That was Malthus was uh, talking about too much population. Yeah, right? but but so he started by noticing yeast. You know, there's all kinds of things you can grow in a vat where they 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 sort of um, they 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 end up killing themselves in their contained environment because the little yeast grows and eats grows so fast that it eventually eats all of available food and then it dies out. So mm -hmm. rapid growth is not a very sustainable strategy in a self-contained environment. Sustainable growth is all about not outpacing your 
yeah, um, your virgin supply. And that's exactly what it is for a virus. Like the virus, in a way, its worst nightmare would be to infect 90% of South Africans uh, very, very quickly. Because then that 90% yeah. have like a 90% protection against even the mutant form of the virus or an 80% protection against even the mutant form of the virus. So it's got a very, very small corner to play in, like a small portion of the infected population and a very tiny virgin population. And it, it, if it doesn't have the numbers, then it's not going to evolve fast enough to, to avoid going extinct. So it might prefer to kind of hover around 60%. Um, anyway, that's like kind of a, that's a, that's a very, very, um, dark way to think. Uh, people, people have rightly, uh, made the moral argument that you shouldn't, you shouldn't try to reach herd immunity. People shouldn't be trying to go and get infected to, to achieve, uh, natural protection, uh, as a way to drive the virus extinct because you have, a very small chance of dying if you're sort of our age and if you're a bit older you have like a, a larger chance of dying and 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 those stakes are just too high um and you've got a very serious chance of passing it on to someone else who is more vulnerable who might die right. so it's not the right way to go about it but that might very well still be the way that we clap COVID 19 and i think politically one of the strange things is going to be um the ongoing effort to not think about natural herd immunity. Like herd immunity was a dirty word. No one wanted to talk about it last year. Uh, not no one. Obviously, I've mentioned some serious scientists who were talking about it. But it was it was not a popular thing in the press, and it was definitely in the cocktail circuit. People say, oh, but how do you know how protected you are? We don't really know. Um, you know, and, and, the, and those are the same people that will say, no, you're definitely protected uh, by the vaccine. Uh, for years, even though we've only had the vaccine for a couple of months. Anyway, um, herd immunity has changed because now there's the, the race is on to achieve herd immunity through vaccination. But it might still be the case that we achieve it through natural immunization. And then it's going to be a very interesting political fight to see how the blame game works, which is accountability, right? Um, and that's part of the reason that I that I think it's unlikely for us to see a zero prevalence test in South Africa being paid for by outsiders or even being paid for by insiders because it's potentially the most embarrassing thing that could happen. If we do a random zero prevalence test and find 60% of South Africa or 50%, 60% of South Africa is infected. That is That fits with Discovery's old right. models. It's, it's going to look like our, our lockdown was a total failure. Yes, was the worst lockdown in the world. Longest, most brutal, most in, not most brutal, but like, you know, lots of silly yep. killing... Lot, lot murderous, brutal, irrational. Uh, right. and Destroyed the economy, brutalized the people, and didn't even stop the virus. So they really do not want that seroprevalence test to be done. Um, they would rather sit in the ambiguous place and hope that in the worst case scenario, the world steps in to save us. And in the best case scenario, we reach natural immunity and we vaccinate a few people and say, oh, look, it was the vaccines that did it. Uh, <laughs> it sounds a lot more like the ANC's plan. <laughs> no, yeah, and I'm worried how they, about how they do everything else. <laughs> and I'm worried about it because also if we're sitting at like 50%, then we're almost in the worst of both worlds because that means the virus has evolved. And that means very likely the virus has evolved 
to increase the chances from like 0.001% of reinfection to like 20% chance of reinfection. So you've got a significant portion of people that can be reinfected and you've got a significant portion of virgins and the vaccine that comes is going to go for the first 10 million people that are going to get it are all going to be people who have the highest chance of already having had it. You know, 50% of the population has it of those particular groups, 80% of those groups have already had it. So the vaccine is the most inefficient and slow rollout. So then you're still leaving the thing with a lot of chance to spread and evolve. And you're also leaving it with like, well, maybe just by luck, uh, by natural happenstance, it's not enough. And so it, 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 it spreads and kills people, but doesn't evolve. Um, right. So, you know, it looks like we're on the path for the, that That's a path for the most people dying. For us squeezing, given our young population, given our relatively dirty population, which is quite good in this context, um, we, we managed to squeeze out the deepest viral penetration and the most deaths, and the government still takes credit because it says, look, we did the vaccine rollout program for two months. By the end of it, the virus completely died, which is 10% because of the vaccine and 90% because of natural herd immunity. Right. Um. Anyway, I think we are we are coming up to the hour now, so 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 let's sort of start wrapping this up. Well, I've given you my spiel. That's sort of my spiel, and it is like uh, I suppose it's something you know. A lot of it, some people would have heard about in the last two weeks. Just one more thing to note: you really should. If you, I feel a bit grumpy with the media, <laughs> um, because very poor, very poor journalism standards. Uh, last week. You know, Washington, Wall Street Journal, Economists, um, a bunch of local publications. Everyone is going on about the Pfizer trial showing that their vaccine is just as effective against the South African strain and the British strain as it is against the Wuhan strain. That was rubbish. It had very little to do with the South African strain. It had nothing to do with an escape mutation. It was a host mutation. So it's exactly the kind of thing that a vaccine should perform equally well against in the first place. This is not just right. my opinion. This is the opinion of major scientists that I've spoken to. It was, it was, it was a silly trial done by a vaccine company to kind of, um, you know, it was an important thing to figure out uh, that the host mutation yeah. isn't so great, but it was badly reported on. I, I will uh, say that this is not uncommon. I've heard uh, a lot of uh, people in the medical sphere complain endlessly about how awful a lot of um, media outlets are at reporting medical news. Um, and I think th during the whole COVID thing, we've we've seen this happen over and over and over again, where sort of wild edge cases or anecdotal stories get massively over-reported. Um, in the, particular, uh, reinfections. People right. have been talking about reinfections from day one. The first reinfection to be genomically sequenced in, in Kansas, I think it was in the U.S. Ooh, everyone went on and on about that. And no one paid attention to the fact that it, that already was a mutant strain. Right. You know? Um, I, I, I also remember the... Uh, what, what, what was it now? Oh, I've forgotten. But, yeah, no, there's been, there's been a... A bunch of bad reports like this. Oh, yes, yes, I remember now. It was um, a healthcare worker who had gotten the vaccine. Now, the vaccine, it was the Pfizer one. It doesn't take, you need to get it in two doses for the 90% effectiveness. And 
it, it, it once you've gotten the first shot, it takes like 10 days and then you're 50% protected. And then when you get the second shot, it takes another like 10 days and then you're 90% infected. This woman, uh, she was a nurse. She got COVID within the 10-day period after her first shot. And it was reported as woman with vac- who had been vaccinated gets COVID. I can't remember which outlet it was. It was one of the big ones. I think it was Reuters or or, or, uh, mm. or one of those mm. kind of uh, the reputable ones. And you had to sort of read halfway through the story to find out that this was completely unremarkable and entirely expected. And yet it was yeah. sort of very mischaracter, very misleadingly cast. Yeah, yeah. So, and there has been that. It's, and similar, like, oh, the vaccines works just as well. No, don't treat people like children. You can say the vaccine won't work as well. It'll still work, but it's not going to work as well against the mutant strain. And people can assimilate that information and make a choice based on it. Right. I think, I think gonna, there was, there was, yeah. you know, there was, there was a, there was more kind of, oh, we need a hype up fear kind of stories in the beginning. But now there's a sort of a moral panic about how many people are anti-vaccines in general. Yeah. So now probably the media is going to overcorrect and never talk about any deficiencies with vaccines. Which is why my, I think the most important moral argument narrow COVID moral argument to make right now is if you, and we said this last year, but I'm going to reiterate it. I said it last year. If you know that you've had the virus, if you know that you've recovered from it and you get vaccinated when you know that there are still virgins out there who are completely vulnerable, then I think you need to look yourself very hard in the mirror and ask if you are, if you feel a duty to others. If you are 90% protected or 99% protected and then you get a vaccine which is making a, a negligible difference to you but could have made a serious difference to someone else, then what's going on? Where, what are your values? That you will take something life-saving from someone else's hands and drink it and it's, and it's making practically no difference to you. And, and, that, and that moral argument is impossible to get through if you if you worried about saying anything against vaccines, I'm not saying against vaccines. I want to be vaccinated, but I went yesterday to the doctor to go and get an antibody test, and I'm waiting for the results. And if I am positive, if I've got zero, if I've got COVID antibodies, I will not be vaccinated until until I know that huge numbers of people that really need the vaccine more than me have been vaccinated, because I'll be taking a very limited resource away from someone for whom it's going to make a much better difference, much bigger difference. Um, and, 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 and I think everyone should be thinking like that, or at least asking themselves that question. But like in America, I was reading about some politician who like, oh, I had the virus, I was tested PCR, I was tested for antibodies afterwards, I definitely had the antibodies, but I'm still taking the vaccine. Didn't even say I'm still taking the vaccine. I am taking the vaccine enthusiastically. And what he's just trying to do is trying to sort of say, hey, look how virtuous I am. I'm taking the vaccine. I'm not worried about side effects or anything like that. But really, he's like spitting on the true value of the vaccine and treating people like little children who are too stupid to assimilate the idea that vaccines are super important and we should prioritize the people most in need of them. Of course, if you say that, some anti-vaxxers are going to say, well, I don't want it anyway. I'll get the test. Oh, luckily, I've already had it. I definitely don't want the vaccine. And so you'll be sort of bolstering the case. But, you know, we can't shift the conversation uh, to 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 the point where no anti where you never want an anti-vaxxer to agree with you. 
Um, <laughs> if that's your rule... That's the kind of silly thinking that's gotten us into so many messes in the past yeah, couple of years. Yeah, it's Trump derangement syndrome and Trump delirium syndrome all over again. It's just this like very, very childish way of behaving. And, yeah, you, and I'm did, very worried about that in South Africa because at the most conservative estimate, like 20 million people have the virus. That's 20 million people that should not be getting vaccinated first. And how many vaccines do we have? Uh, I don't know. We've got like five or something at the moment. Five million. Well, there you have it. And in fact, I think that's more. I think we have one and a half million vials, yes. which is 750,000 doses. And we're looking, <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we're not we really, every, every vial counts and they should not be going to people who already had the, the vaccine. I mean, who already had the disease and people who know that they already had the disease, including famous politicians. And we're going to see this with the ANC. Famous ANC politicians who, who everyone knows got sick, if they flip and take that vaccine to try and signal their like love of science, it just shows how little you care about science. <laughs> oh, I look forward to the 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 beaming uh, the beaming face of, of 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 all those politicians as they're getting vaccinated. Anyway, I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, any last thoughts, anything you want to recommend? I don't think I have any recommendations for this week, but, um, do you have, I'll anything? just, you want I'll just say, yeah, if you, if you are worried about vaccines, check out the, the Norway's, um, withdrawal of its vaccines from its sort of 80, 85 year old plus, um, section of the population because they've had 23 deaths, 13 seem to be shown by autopsies to have been connected with the vaccines. Uh, overreactions. Uh, it does look like the best prioritization scheme is to sort of do exactly what the Russians have done, which is prioritize the vaccine for people 60 to 75. Uh, they need it first, uh, healthcare workers that are really in the thick of it. Uh, and then you work your way down a little bit. And as more evidence comes up down the, down the, uh, population waiting so like then you get your 50 to 60 year olds then your 40 to 50 year olds um and uh and uh yeah see see the data come forward about 80 85 year old pluses um but try and protect them through herd immunity rather than through giving them a form of the virus which is what a vaccine is uh i think that's also something to check out because yeah the russians the russians have it exactly right in my view and it's not an anti-vax thing to say 85 year olds shouldn't be getting it because 13 people died which is, which may be a relatively small number uh given the size of of norway's sort of elderly population that's been vaccinated but it's still a very serious number to contemplate uh it's it's again it's just trying to say look given the imperfections of our tools and of our knowledge what's the most efficient way we can go about things so that's a thing to check out on a lighter note um Jeez, is there anything light left, Nick? <laughs> yeah, of course there is. Uh, it's just that's not that's not our job to talk about what's going well. I okay, guess. I, I watched. I watched. <laughs> Unless it the, is going well. My favorite movie watching experience of 2021 is Aaron Brockovich, um, which is kind of a funny movie because the the bitter punchline is that you know she's like a a, a single mom with three kids who ends up discovering that the water in Hinkley has been poisoned and so drives a lawsuit 
uh, that 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 ends up making a huge difference to a lot of people's lives that were ruined by cancer and all kinds of terrible things uh, because of the poisoned water. Uh, and the, but the bitter sort of thing that the movie doesn't mention is that the the settlement was actually quite low relative to what they might have gotten if they'd taken a different legal approach, uh, but still very high. You know, families got millions of dollars, which which paid for legal fees and also just helped them sort of have more comfortable lives in difficult times. Um, so that bitter that bitter thing to the side, I think it's uh, a wonderful uh, uh, memory. What do they call it? The youth. They don't talk about memories. They talk about memberries, little memberry to chew on. Is that really? Have I? Am I that out of touch? Have I never heard this before? <laughs> Dude, memberries. It's 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 happening. Uh, it's a memberry about like what can happen when people seek truth, stick to their guns, face down Goliath. Uh, you can make a real difference. Um, and it's inspiring and Julia Roberts has great legs and, and, a, and a very winning smile and sort of plays, plays the bimbo off the, the bimbo stereotype off of the sort of very gritty, very intelligent um, go-getter stereotype in, in, in a way that's sort of disturbing and charming and, uh, and probably couldn't be made today. But I think it's a really exceptional movie. If you haven't seen it, give it a check. And if you have seen it, maybe just give it a rewatch. I watched it 15 years ago, and uh, I was surprised uh, in rewatching it how much I liked it. I guess all I can recommend is um, YouTube is full of videos of seals, and they are delightful creatures to watch. Anyway, <laughs> that is all the time <laughs> for today. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone, and uh, keep the flag of liberty flying. <laughs> Grr, 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 grr.